0: What is up, you guys? Welcome to this week's edition of the Fundamental Health Podcast. Uh, I got to read you this review for Heart and Soil. This is amazing. The title is Remarkable Results. And it is from Kenneth G. Kenny G who is 68 years old, apparently, says, I've had experience in the past with herbal combination products that tweak the endocrine system and supposedly boost the production of testosterone. While they work or seem to work, it's entirely different with whole package from heart and soil. This supplement actually works and the results are remarkable from the muscle building without any strenuous workouts to the mental attitude change from hello to hey baby, but in the absolute best way. Carnivore, two years, age 68. Life is great to take big bites, says uh, says David G, who may also go by Kenny G. And another review that I want to give you guys is from about whole package, excuse me, about Immunomilk. You've heard me talk about whole package all the time. You know, that's my favorite one. I eat it with my meals. I talk about it on Instagram. That's the one with testicle, the most testicle of any desiccated organ supplement on the market. But Milk is our grass-fed, grass-finished um, colostrum, and that is full of immunoglobulins and other immune, uh, immune supporting factors that are especially important in as we go into the winter with viruses of all sorts, shapes and sizes. So we got a review from Barbara M who said, I love the way that Immunomilk helped me kick the common cold really fast. Um, so if you are thinking about virus season, check out some Immunomilk. If you are looking for performance in the gym, grab some whole package from us at Heart and Soil. As you guys all know, I'm super proud of this company and what we do. We make grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised, uh, desiccated organ supplements from the finest animals on the planet in New Zealand and Australia. And you can find us at heartandsoil.co. And we are all about, this feels so meaningful that we can help you reclaim your birthright to radical health. Guys have also heard me talk about metabolic health quite a bit. And so I am excited to share with you this week's podcast, which is essentially about metabolic health and how we measure it. I talked to Kara from NutriSense, Kara Collier, who is a registered dietitian, and um, as well as a licensed dietitian and nutritionist and a certified nutrition support clinician, who specializes in glucose control and metabolism. She graduated from Purdue University, previously worked at the Memphis VA Medical Center uh, and is a a clinical dietitian at Providence Hospital. She is the director of nutrition at NutriSense.io. And we have an awesome conversation in this episode about what other than continuous glucose monitors. I've worn these in the past from NutriSense. I really appreciate what they are doing. And- I think they play a very valuable role. My dad wore one in the past and it helped him modify his behavioral habits. They play a very valuable role in helping us understand what a postprandial glucose response actually looks like. And then by proxy, what a postprandial insulin response might look like. I think this is a great set of data to triangulate with something like a fasting insulin and your lipids to get a sense of how metabolically healthy you are. You guys have heard me talk about this. There is no metric that is more important than your overall metabolic health in your response to COVID and everything else in your life. And so these serve a very valuable role. We opened the discussion with some free discourse about the recent debate about the utility of continuous glucose monitors in non diabetics. I strongly believe that these are incredibly useful for this population of individuals. So if you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. Uh, That really moves the needle there. Apple Podcasts. Now it's called, um, I will give away a free signed copy of my book to one person per month who leaves me a review on Apple Podcasts. I don't even know if Spotify lets you leave a review, but leave me a review wherever you can. Let me know what I can do better. Or if you like it, give me five stars that we can spread the message to more people, because that is what it's all about. That is what feels so meaningful. And believe me, the message is spreading. As a disclaimer on this episode, I do need to disclose that I am an investor in NutriSense. I only invest in companies that I believe in deeply. That does not affect my decision to have them on the podcast or so to talk about this. You can use whatever company you want for a continuous glucose monitor. What is most important to me is that you consider using a continuous glucose monitor and understanding what your postprandial uh, glucose looks like. wanna thank my sponsors for this episode, With starting with White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. Uh, they are a grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised, Farm in Bluffton, Georgia. It's an amazing place. I call it the mothership, and I always joke about the fact that if there's a zombie apocalypse, that's where I'm going. Um, they've got a cabin reserved for me. And maybe if you guys listen to this podcast, you can come hang out at my cabin at uh, White Oak Pastures if there's a zombie apocalypse. But the meat there is amazing. They are pioneers in the regenerative agriculture space. Will and Jenny Harris are incredibly good people. They also do lamb. Um, pork, Iberico pork. They do soy and corn-free chicken. They do eggs. They do duck. They do guinea. They do all kinds of things. Check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. Use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order. Um, I appreciate what Belcampo has done in the past. Uh, It appears that they have stopped their e-commerce, but I believe they are having an end of e-commerce sale. Uh, You can go to belcampo.com and use the code CARNIVOREMD there to get 20% off your order at Belcampo while supplies last, I believe. Um, CGMs are valuable because they help democratize medicine. And uh, I'm also a fan of this company, Let's Get Checked, which also helps to democratize medicine by getting you at home lab testing. You don't even need to go see your doctor, you can order this stuff online. They are at trylgc.com, front slash Paul, or you can use the, car- the coupon code carnivoremd. You guys have heard me talk a lot about men's hormones, it's something I'm obsessed with as a man. Even for women, sex hormones are critical. In men, we know that testosterone is plummeting and symptoms are horrible. L erectile dysfunction, low energy, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, decision-making fatigue. It's horrible stuff. You don't want it. But how are you gonna know what's going on with your hormones if you don't check? A lot of people don't wanna go to their doctor. as a hassle. Maybe the doctor does not wanna check your testosterone and male hormones or female hormones. This is why Let's Get Checked uh, serves a very valuable role. Um, you can uh, use the code CarnivoreMD or you go to trylgc.com front slash Paul and new customers get 20% off First you go to trylgc.com, front Paul, choose your test online, delivered to you in discreet packaging with next day delivery. You collect your sample at home, it's super easy. I did it at my house in Austin, it was great, super convenient. Once your sample arrives in the laboratory, you get your results in two to five days. If you do male hormone testing, you get testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin, prolactin, estrogen, free androgen index. Once your results are available, they're reviewed by a physician and a nurse contacts you for a consultation over the phone, it's easy. I did CRP, I did lipids, I did um, all kinds of good stuff and it was really convenient and really uh, a great way to get this done at home. All data is anonymized and they are CLIA approved. So check them out, try L-G-C-T-R-Y-L-G-C.com front slash Paul, Uh, the code is Paul or CarnivoreMD. It's both on my read sheet, so check both. You get 20% off and just understand what your labs, democratized medicine is the way to go. Uh, Finally, I want to give a shout out to 8sleep.com, E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P.com, front slash carnivore MD. Uh, You guys know that it's a myth that you need to sleep at a certain temperature, but as you are sleeping, if the bed is cooling, if there is some ability for your mattress to stay cool, that can affect your circadian rhythm positively and increase the quality of your sleep. I can imagine that sleeping on the earth, you don't get very hot because the earth is a stable temperature and it's sort of like the ultimate cooling mattress. But very few of us sleep on the earth, even me who claims to be pretty darn uh, ancestral and uh, pretty basic and pretty minimal, I'd like to sleep in a bed indoors. So I do think that that Eight Sleep does a great job of kind of mimicking the earth in a way by having a cooling mattress. You don't want a mattress that you're sweating in, that is no fun. The Pod Pro by Eight Sleep is the most solution, most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You've got dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. It's like AI in your mattress. You can go as cool as 55 or as hot as 110. You can also do both sides of the bed independently. So your bed partner can be hotter than you or colder than you. It's amazing. In the morning, it'll wake you up with vibration, which is kind of nice rather than an alarm. And um, it'll give you biometrics. It'll give you HRV and all kinds of good stuff while you're sleeping. So Check them out. Eight Sleep e i g h t s l e e p dot com front slash carnivoremd to check out the Pod Pro and save one hundred and fifty bucks at checkout using the promo code carnivoremd. Sleep is the ultimate game changer. It's huge. Talked about this recently on another podcast. Change your diet, change your sleep. Not many things more powerful than that. So, all right, guys, onto the podcast with Kara. I uh, hope you enjoy this one. Kara, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Good to have you here.
1: Yeah, excellent to be here, Paul.
0: So I want to let people know that we did a part one, or there's a previous CGM podcast from a few years ago, but uh, I'm excited to have you back on and continue the conversation because this continues to be at the forefront of many discussions regarding metabolic health, which is something that I think about and you guys at NutraSense think about all the time. And so I thought this was a great time to sort of re-establish conversations around glucose metrics, area under the curve, things we're going to talk about in detail on this podcast for my audience who might not have heard the first CGM podcast we did a few years ago. I wanted to start this podcast with a screen share of a recent clip from Joe Rogan's podcast with Sanjay Gupta, but the, um, the technology gods are not... Uh, favoring me today. The odds are not in my favor and I cannot get the audio on that to work. So I will paraphrase something Joe said. If people want to actually hear this clip, it is on my Instagram uh, where I reposted it. But Joe Rogan's recent podcast with sandra Gupta, Joe makes the point that perhaps only messaging to people uh, about vaccinations as a protection from COVID or severe cases of COVID-19 is incomplete messaging because there are many other things that people should be aware of with regard to their overall health, specifically their metabolic health, which is something that we will define in this podcast and go into more detail. And Joe makes the very uh, the very important point that a metabolically unhealthy individual is at a much higher risk of a severe COVID outcome. And there hasn't really been adequate, or in my opinion, any discussion of how people can assay, how people can know if they are metabolically healthy, and then how they can correct it as part of the total COVID sort of communication from mainstream media, from the current political um, institutions, or from health institutions like mainstream medicine in general. And so that's why I think this podcast is so important. So with all of that as a framework, let's just start out with Um, what a continuous glucose monitor is. This is super, super basic, but let's talk about what a continuous glucose monitor is and how this can help someone get a sense of how metabolically healthy they are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you broke up a little bit there, Paul, but so I think that kind of the gist of what we're just going to go over kind of what a continuous glucose monitor is and kind of how this can help people be metabolically healthy um, and then related to the COVID piece, you know, I've talked about this with other people in our company, other people in my team I've just imagine if part of that package, everyone was given a CGM and some information at the start of COVID. Um, imagine if that was just standard of care, how much better off we would be. You know, we can only guess because something like that never happened, probably won't happen. Um, but it can tell us a lot about our metabolic health. So Just kind of starting of what is a continuous glucose monitor um, that is cgm for those have heard this before it is essentially a small disc like device about the size of a quarter that you can put on the back of your arm or with some other companies you can also put it on your abdomen Um, And this is a device that now allows you to monitor your glucose 24 7. And so, previously, you know, we'll talk about the different metrics, different ways to monitor glucose. We usually get a snapshot in time from blood levels, or maybe you can prick your finger and kind of see it here and there from an over-the-counter device. But with a CGM, you're able to see 24 7 glucose levels for two weeks at a time. And so, you have this device on the back of your arm. and you can just use your phone to scan it over and see an updated glucose graph from the last, you know, couple hours or the last time since you scanned it. And this is really the first time that we're able to get this continuous data stream of glucose information. And this allows people to see, you know, what's happening while they're sleeping. The exact shape of that postprandial curve all these different nuances of our glucose levels that happen day in and day out that we really can't capture with any other device Um, and in the us this is actually a medical device so it requires a medical prescription um, which is why it is historically used just in the small niche of a usually even insulin dependent diabetic. Um, It's actually not even that commonly used for diabetics, type two diabetics on metformin or other oral medications, pre diabetics, it's very rarely used um, in that population. So it's mostly used for people who are kind of more um, medically fragile on insulin therapy and they're working with their physician to kind of manage that diabetes and probably adjust insulin dosing based off of the glucose readings.
0: And so you said a word in there. I just want to define for the audience so they know postprandial. This means after eating. Um, It's a word that I've thrown around a lot also, but uh, just so you guys know, that's an after eating word. And we'll try to pick up the words that we talk about because some of this may get fairly technical. Now, as you, as you said, maybe you can contrast for us, contrast a CGM with the other ways that people measure their glucose? Because I think this is a really important point to make. So you can contrast it with like a fasting insulin or uh, a single point, or excuse me, a fasting glucose or a single point of glucose check or an A1C, things like this.
1: Yep, so there are two most commonly used glucose values that uh, you might get from your physician if you go in for an annual checkup or you're getting routine care done. The first is going to be that fasting blood glucose value. So this is exactly what it sounds like. You know, this is your blood glucose levels in a fasted state. So at least eight hours of fasting, um, you go in and you take this and it's really only a snapshot in time, right? It's telling you on that day, in that moment, what is your fasting glucose levels. It's also not telling us how your body is responding to meals or how it is in the fed state which is a lot of the time we spend our days is in a fed state Um, but that is important nonetheless we want to know how our body can handle um, glucose regulation in that fasted state and typically if you're below 100 that is considered normal non-diabetic thresholds where 100 to 126 would be considered pre-diabetic and then above 126 would be diabetes Um, There's a plethora of research out there that we actually might want to aim for fasting glucose closer to below 90. Um, We start to see kind of increased risk factors when we are looking at that 90 to 100. But in general, fasting glucose can vary quite a bit day to day. So anyone who's checking their uh, glucose with a glucometer or wearing a CGM will see that maybe one day their morning fasting glucose is 110. The next day it's 90. The next day it's 80. Sometimes it's 70. This can vary a lot for people if they are not getting regular sleep or if they're eating really late at night, um, one night, but have an earlier dinner the night before, or if they go out to eat and have pizza and beer, their glucose is going to be high the next morning. So what we're realizing is it's this small snapshot, but it can change very often. Uh, so that's just something to keep in mind, kind of a flaw of a fasting glucose and just looking through that lens. Um, and then the other common glucose metric we have is a hemoglobin A1c. So a lot of people are probably familiar with this, sometimes just called A1c or HbA1c. And this is a metric that is instead looking at your average glucose values. So um, essentially it's measuring the amount of sugar that's stuck to your hemoglobin. Um, So it's giving us a decent proxy of over the past two to three months, how much sugar on average is circulating in your bloodstream. A lot of people misquote me when I say that I think that A1C is completely useless. I don't think it's completely useless, but it has a lot of flaws that we need to take into consideration. One is just inherently when you're measuring an average, you're missing the ups and downs, right? And we're going to talk about, as you mentioned, that postprandial or potential spikes in glucose but an average is capturing the middle. So your glucose could be swinging a lot all day long versus someone who has a pretty stable glucose level, and you might have the same average as that person. So we're missing that variability, um, which is an important component of assessing glucose tolerance. But additionally, the A1C test in general um, is relying on your red blood cells. So It's capturing that hemoglobin on your red blood cells, which we're estimating on average lives 90 days, but that's not always true for everybody. So somebody with anemia, which is extremely common, that's going to skew their red blood cell life and skew the test results. Um, Someone who had recent blood loss, smokers, uh, someone with B12 deficiency, all of these things might skew the A1C test and cause either to be, Falsely high or falsely low. Uh, So, because of that, sometimes it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Where I do think it is useful is tracking personal progress. You know, if you are getting a new A1C test every six months, three months, one year, and it was 10% two years ago, and then you got down to eight, and then you got down to six, that's meaningful progress. It tells you a trend. But if you get an A1C and it's 6%, but you have iron deficiency, anemia, and recent blood loss, that could actually be a normal A1C and and we're kind of missing the nuance there. So those are the two most common metrics um, and they have some flaws as we mentioned. The third metric that we could use to diagnose diabetes or prediabetes but is not very commonly used is an oral glucose tolerance test. So with oral glucose tolerance test, you usually come into the office fasted and then you drink 75 grams, typically sometimes 100 grams of pure glucose solution, which if anyone has done this before, it's not super pleasant. It tastes like a very sweet flat Sprite and you sit there and you don't move and you try not to be active at all and you see what your glucose does. So usually they're measuring your glucose before you drink it, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes and 120 minutes. And from, traditional guidelines diagnosing diabetes, they look at that two hour glucose mark after you've drink this glucose sugary solution, and they wanna see your glucose below 140 at two hours. Um, So interestingly, even though they're measuring glucose at all of those intervals, only the two hour mark is used for diagnostic purposes. So that's some people might be familiar with if you've ever been pregnant because you do an oral glucose tolerance test during um, the pregnancy to make sure you don't have gestational diabetes. But other than that, it's not used very commonly in clinical settings um, because most people don't have time to have the patient sit there for two hours. Um, Most individuals don't want to do that. Uh, So it's used more so in research settings than in clinical practice.
0: I think that most people, if they're going to check their glucose, use a glucometer and will do a morning fasting glucose. I don't think many people do a postprandial glucose after meals, um, but you could do that if you knew what sort of levels to look for after your meal. But as as you're pointing out, Kara, with only one point on a 24-hour graph of your glucose, you can't tell anything about really the morphology of your postprandial glucose curve, which is really the most important piece of data here. The way your postprandial glucose trend looks and something called the area under the curve, which we'll talk about, which really gives you a good sense of your insulin sensitivity, essentially synonymous with metabolic health, which is what this whole conversation is about. So I should have said at the outset that I really strongly believe that wearing a continuous glucose monitor and getting a fasting insulin and or getting a fasting insulin metric, a fasting insulin blood draw are probably the two best ways that I can think of to get a sense of your metabolic health. Um, This is why I really appreciate continuous glucose monitors, and I believe they're valuable for everyone, even people who are not type 1 diabetics on adjunctive insulin, even type 2 diabetics I think should have them, even people who are non-diagnosed with diabetics should have them. But one of the other reasons that I really wanted to have this conversation now, and I thought that it was particularly relevant to this time, is that in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, the Journal of the American Medical Association actually came out with an article, which we can screen share here, kind of contradicting what we're saying. So let's just offer both sides of this equation, Kara, Can you break down for us some of the criticisms of the use of continuous glucose monitors in non-diabetics and why... Uh, why JAMA published this article, and then we'll get into, you know, sort of our counter points to them and talk about why we think that they're missing some things. But I'll just note that um, this article is not something I agree with. And there was a vegan physician on um, Twitter who will remain remain nameless, who also chimed in on this and said, stop, you know, giving CGMs to non-diabetic patients. Um, And I just thought, this is the middle of a pandemic. Why would you want less information about your patients and not more? Uh, The snarky side of me thought that perhaps it was because her plant-based patients, the patients that she was advocating for plant-based diets in, were coming up with CGMs that didn't look so good and that it was causing her consternation, which is actually what we want to happen, but that she was saying, why are you making my life harder? I don't know that for a fact, but that's my suspicion. Um, As we know, many people on plant-based diets are going to be including or might be including seed oils. Uh, which is a whole separate conversation. They're generally felt to be fine within those diets, and perhaps these people are having non-ideal glucose responses. But having said that, why don't you talk to us a little bit about this JAMA article and the pushback against CGMs, Continuous Glucose Monitors in Non-Diabetics?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, this was a JAMA Perspective article. Um, I believe she probably wrote it at this time because There are companies like my company NutriSense that are starting to utilize CGMs more particularly for the general audience and not just that use case of insulin-dependent diabetics like we mentioned in the beginning. Uh, And her argument was that this is not useful for non-diabetics. Uh, Most of the arguments come around that they are expensive and complicated and aren't providing any additional insight for this group of individuals. Um, And also that when you put a CGM on a non-diabetic, they have normal glucose levels, so you're not learning anything new. You know, you just spent money on some complicated piece of technology and you didn't gain any insight out of it. Um, That's where a lot of the core argument comes from on the other side. I will definitely agree with the expensive component. Unfortunately, this technology is still relatively new and it is on the higher price point. Um, pretty confidently can say that that hardware will decrease in price over time because it already has significantly. You know, When this came out on the market 10-ish years ago, they were in the thousands of dollars and they lasted for about three days. And now they last two weeks and they're about you know, $100 or so a month or per CGM. So we're already seeing those costs come down. But what I can definitely not agree with is that it doesn't provide any useful information. and so that's that's why I helped build the company I work at, NutriSense, is because I'm a registered dietitian by trade, and I used to work in kind of a traditional clinical setting, working with people who were very sick, um, people who had multiple chronic conditions, and it wasn't working very well. You know, I was helping people that we were catching really far down the road. Um, We weren't providing very useful information to them. Some of the information I was taught by the Dietetics Association wasn't super useful to them either. They didn't have the tools they needed to be successful. They were told just to eat less, exercise more, take their medication. Um, So from all that frustration in the real world, working with real individuals, I helped start NutriSense, which uses these devices, continuous glucose monitors for everyone. Anybody who wants information about their bodies and wants to improve their health, we're trying to provide access to this information in a way that's digestible and accessible. Um, And so I will definitely agree that the devices themselves prior to having a more of a software and a system that helps break it down and make it um, digestible to understand and actionable, uh, the information can be complicated and overwhelming if you don't have any sort of insight pointing you into you know, what the glucose levels mean, what to do about it. Um, but that's why we created our own app and our dietitian service to kind of help solve that need. So with all of that being said, you know, what we'll talk about today is why we both disagree with the fact that CGMs are not appropriate for those without diabetes. Um, And there are many reasons why we believe this Uh, and, Essentially, we're seeing people every single day walk around, walk out of our program with life-changing outcomes, even if they didn't have diabetes. So we're working with these individuals every day, thousands of people, uh, and and we can start diving into the reasons if you want.
0: Yeah, I will note here that my father actually wore uh, multiple CGMs from Nutrisense. He is not diagnosed diabetic. I don't have his data. I should have asked him if we could share it, but I don't know if he would have wanted his blood glucose levels shared. But I know that that he actually did talk to you guys about his feedback. My father is a retired physician. This was not part of his training. This was not something he was used to. But the feedback that he gave me subjectively was that it was very helpful for him to create behavioral change, to see what his blood glucose was doing postprandially, there's that word again, and to, to motivate him to do behavioral change. As many of you know, one of the hardest things that those of us who are savvy or interested in metabolic health and overall health of humans uh, face is how do we help support our family members who are not so savvy with regard to this stuff as they make health transitions. And helping my dad become healthier has been one of the greatest challenges of my life. It's just difficult to talk to your parents because they don't want to listen to you all the time or they're kind of stuck in their ways. And so I was really thankful for the assistance that you guys gave my dad when he wore uh, multiple continuous glucose monitors. But yeah, let's let's dive into um, some of the shortcomings of the study that JAMA points to. So the article in JAMA points to a study that says that 96% of the time, those, with non, those non-diabetics stayed under 140 milligrams per deciliter uh, for their blood glucose. And we're going to come back to that 140 milligrams per deciliter number later. I don't think it's magical, but it is a, an important threshold or a useful threshold from which to begin discussions. But as, as you have pointed out to me when you were analyzing this article... The median, which is the middle value of this set of set of numbers, the median time spent above one hundred and forty milligrams per deciliter was thirty minutes per day, and that may not be so ideal so let's let's dig into this further and talk about even the study that JAMA used to to ostensibly criticize CGMs might have pointed out the flaws in our thinking a little bit. The JAMA article pointed to a uh, a study that said that 96% of the time people were under 140 milligrams per deciliter, but that the median level of time outside of 140 was 30 minutes per day, which may not be totally normal. So even though the gym article was criticizing CGMs or calling them into question, the study that they were using there actually brought up a big part of the problem, which is that uh, a median of 30 minutes a day outside of 140 milligrams per deciliter might be a real problem for humans physiologically. So why why is that? Like, Let's dig into a little bit more about the morphology of postprandial blood glucose curves, what your blood sugar, quote unquote, should look like, what a healthy blood glucose response is after eating, and why, why a median value, the middle of the data set, shows 30 minutes a day of people outside of a range of 140 milligrams per deciliter, why that could be an indication that there's something else problematic brewing underneath the surface here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, kind of as we mentioned with the other traditional glucose metrics, fasting glucose and hemoglobin A1C, and even a glucometer, you're it, have a really difficult time capturing that postprandial glucose response. Um, you know, fasting glucose and hemoglobin A1C don't capture that at all. And with a glucometer at home, you might be able to catch what's happening with your postprandial glucose, but you'd really need to ch- prick your fingers multiple times to actually see kind of that curve. That data stream of that postprandial response. And what we know from the oral glucose tolerance test research so, again, you know, that's a test where you're drinking a bunch of glucose, not necessarily representative of real food, real life. But what we know from that is that a lot of the initial glucose dysregulation, so um, patterns that might be setting off some red flags, actually happen in that postprandial response first. So it's very common to see somebody who has a really high glucose value after they consume a meal or consume this glucose challenge, but they might have completely normal fasting glucose levels or average glucose levels. And I see this just in clinical practice all the time. You know, I work with thousands of people now who have worn CGMs and it's very common for someone to come in and say, you know, my... Fasting glucose is 85, my hemoglobin A1C is 5%. I just kind of want to see what's happening with the CGM. They're just kind of curious. And then they might have their go-to lunch meal and their glucose is hitting 200. Um, This is not uncommon, you know, I see this all of the time. And so we know from this OGTT research that some of the initial changes tend to happen first in that postprandial response. And what we know is that a lot of normal glycemic individuals, normal as in those traditional metrics, sometimes up to a quarter of them will show dysregulated glucose levels uh, in that postprandial response. And that is associated with increased amounts of inflammation, chronic inflammation, inflammatory responses happening during that glucose spike, Um, also increased signs of insulin resistance. There's also prospective studies that are showing people who hit a certain threshold in that postprandial response are more likely to develop diabetes down the road. Even if their glucose was quote unquote "normal" by our traditional diabetic diagnostic criteria. Um, we're also seeing decline in the beta cell function, which is where in the pancreas, the beta cells are what release insulin. And we know that insulin is what helps bring glucose down. and insulin sensitivity and avoiding insulin resistance is kind of the core of a lot of our you know metabolic health and what we want to achieve. We also know that these postprandial responses are related to cardiovascular health. Uh, We know that when that two-hour postprandial glucose mark for the oral glucose tolerance test is above a certain threshold, um, not the diagnostic threshold for diabetes, which is 140 at that two-hour mark, There are studies that show when it's actually above 83 or 87, sometimes 100, that we have a linear relationship between cardiovascular disease death and that two hour postprandial glucose response. So with all of this being said, we have a pretty good idea that we want to monitor both how high our glucose goes and how quickly we're able to recover back to pre-meal glucose values in order to get a really good idea of what's going on with metabolic health and our glucose regulation as a whole. know, if we're only looking at those averages and we're only looking at what's happening in a fasted state, then we might completely miss those metrics that are very important indicators of health and sometimes the first warning sign. Um, And as I'm sure you're aware, and we'll kind of get into this more, identifying those early warning signs and doing something about it really focusing on prevention catching um, yellow flags rather than red flags that makes it so much easier than to make meaningful change quickly uh, if we can catch somebody who has a postprandial glucose response to 180 make some tweaks get that back down into normal ranges before they end up with a diabetes diagnosis that's so much easier than if we're kind of undoing decades of damage that's happened metabolically. So we want to be able to capture these peaks, but as we mentioned, doing an oral glucose tolerance test to capture this is not ideal. Most physicians don't have the time for that. Um, most patients don't have the time for that, nor do they maybe have the appetite for it either. Um, and it's not representative of real food as we've spoken about. Um, it's it's not ideal in the sense that it's not realistic that you're drinking a 75 gram glucose solution because that's not what people do in real life. So a Nutrisense, if people want to challenge do a carb challenge to see kind of how they respond under maybe a higher glycemic load we tend to recommend that they do it with real food so we'll do the same 75 gram equivalent but of white rice or honey or white potatoes something that's pretty close to, you know, a, a carb load in one sitting, but more realistic of kind of real food and, and what a real uh, glycemic challenge might be. And, and we use that to see how that postprandial response is looking.
0: And people can even do this with their, their normal meals. They don't have to do a 75 gram load of honey or sweet potatoes or white potatoes or rice. You just, it, it, that's valuable, but you could also just look at the way your glucose is behaving after- or between your regular meals, and you can see these postprandial morphologies, which we'll show uh, on the video. But I love that you point out this fact, Kara, that that this, this, this progression to quote-unquote diabetes happens over years and years and years, over which time the car is rusting. You hear people say sometimes, I got diabetes. They went to the doctor and suddenly they caught diabetes, or they suddenly have something that breaks like a timing belt and the car broke or up, oh, it's time to get my oil filter changed. I have diabetes. No, it's not a switch. It doesn't happen one day. It's happening right now to many people to millions of people in the United States, hundreds of millions of people, likely, um, and billions of people around the world. And it's just that we have this arbitrary cutoff in Western medicine, and we say, oh, if your fasting glucose is 126 milligrams per deciliter, or you have a random glucose, which is above 200 milligrams per deciliter, or something like that, or you have an OGTT, which has this glucose level at two hours, or this level at one hour, Or you have a hemoglobin A1C that is above this level, which shows an average over three months, then you are diabetic. But along the way to that diabetes were years and years and years of corrosion, quote unquote, in your arteries, in the vessels of your eyes, in your nerves, in all of the uh all of the important little connections between the things in your body that make your body work well and so that is what we're trying to do is just head this off at the pass before the train is essentially going over the cliff because that's what you have when you're when you're diagnosed with diabetes that train is about to go over the cliff and you have damage you have. You know the body has some potential to undo that damage. But understanding this earlier, which is the whole point of this podcast and this conversation and what Joe was saying and what I've been trying to echo as well, is it's not just a vaccine to protect people from COVID. It's understanding that metabolic health is going to change the way your immune system responds to COVID. Make a vaccine choice based on your education uh, of yourself. And that's something that I respect, whether you choose to be vaccinated or not. I've talked about that on previous podcasts. But understand your metabolic health as well and know that that is going to affect how well your immune system works. So over years and years and years, you are hurting your immune system. You're hurting your blood vessels, which affect things like sexual response, vision, uh, capillary perfusion to your legs and hands and everything in your body, the way your gut works, all of these things so important to see long-term and head them off before. You pointed out a study in um, our pre-podcast conversations that I thought was really cool. So I'll share this one, and maybe you can share with us a little bit about this one. This is the study um, that you were mentioning that shows some of the real trends for people. When we actually look at people and we say, okay, how um, how good is their glucose control really? Um, I thought this study was quite interesting. The title of the study is Real Life Glycemic Profiles in Non-Diabetic Individuals with Low Fasting Glucose and Normal Hemoglobin A1C. Uh, this is a perfect study, the A1C-derived average glucose ADAG study. First author is R. Borg. So when we do real life looking at this kind of stuff, what do we see, Kara?
1: Yeah. So this study in particular found that uh, 93% of individuals reached above that 140 threshold that we were kind of looking for. And so that's, that's a pretty high percentage of people, average 26 minutes a day, which is similar to the other one we saw of about 30 minutes a day. Um, But some people, 10% of individuals spent at least two hours above that range. And two hours is a very significant amount of time. Um, And this is kind of despite normal glucose monitoring. So despite the fact that they are non-diabetic by those traditional metrics. And again, this is kind of what we see in clinical practice, and um, I think that you could probably agree with this, it's usually pretty easy to identify individuals who don't work with patients versus those who do, because you realize that it doesn't always match up perfectly from uh, the research or the recommendations when you start to work with real individuals. Um, and, And that's what we see is we see a lot of people who have normal metrics and show up with the CGM and it doesn't look as normal or as healthy as we might have anticipated. And that's another point that I think frustrates me the most about the JAMA perspective is that. I feel like we take one step back and two steps backward, one step forward, two steps backwards sometimes where we're starting to become a little bit more aware of the importance of prevention and staying on top of things, identifying things early. More and more individual consumers are wanting to be advocates for the health and take control of this. And then we have... um counter arguments like this that say like, no, no, keep doing the status quo. Don't look into your health too much, just, you know, check the normal boxes and that's good enough. I can't tell you how many patients we have, how many clients we have come to us that say, you know, I went to my doctor recently and I got lab work and I'm in the pre-diabetic range for the first time. And they told me just monitor it, come back next year, we'll recheck it, just, you know, Keep an eye on it, and that's not helpful advice, first of all, and it doesn't put enough emphasis on this is the moment to do something about it. You know, if we're seeing those yellow flags on the CGM, we're seeing those higher postprandial responses, or you're entering that pre-diabetic zone, as you mentioned, this already means there's been decades of damage occurring, but we're not yet to that threshold of full decompensation that indicates the diabetes. So this is the time where we want to gear you up with all the information and tools that you can have to make sure we don't skew towards the continuum of diabetes, because as you mentioned, it's not black and white, it's not healthy, not healthy, diabetes, not diabetes. It's this metabolic spectrum, and you can fall anywhere on that spectrum. And let's say you know, you're know you in the middle, you're heading towards diabetes, we want to skew you back into non-diabetic, into healthy ranges. Um, and I think the current mindset that I left, because I was frustrated in the traditional healthcare system, is that we don't actually do anything until you're actually all the way at the end of the spectrum. And then, you know, we'll, we'll give you some medication and try to get you managed. Um, and I just think that's the wrong mindset. And I unfortunately think that articles like this kind of keep us stuck in that mindset. You know, by the time that diabetes diagnosis has happened, we know that 60% of those beta cells in the pancreas have been damaged or destroyed or aren't working as well as they should be. We know that by the time you hit that spectrum of diabetes, we're already seeing complications in 50% of people. As you mentioned, the retinopathy, the neuropathy, the cardiovascular irregularities, um, the lack of foot pulses, all of these complications are already showing up by the time we hit that spectrum. And I don't think that that's when we should start intervening. That shouldn't be when we start to say, okay, uh, let's do something about this. It needs to be way earlier. And the more we can talk about that and make people aware of that and give them the tools that they need so they can actually take actionable change on these metrics, the better off we can be. Because we already have a lot of people in that pre-diabetic and diabetic state it's not a small number, as many people are likely aware. Uh, it's, it's not a small sliver of the population. Um, there's already a lot of people headed towards that. And then there's a lot more people who are on that spectrum towards that. So my goal really is catch it as soon as we can. And most likely that means before diabetes, which means we have to be looking at this information before we hit that end of the
0: spectrum. Absolutely. And Just so people know, if you are curious right now what causes metabolic dysfunction, what should I eat, I will refer you to the previous podcast that I've done on this topic. I've done many, many podcasts on this topic, most recently with Tucker Goodrich. It is my firm belief that the major driver of this progression to metabolic dysfunction is evolutionarily inconsistent levels of linoleic acid found in seed oils. So please refer back to the podcast with Tucker Goodrich, where we talk about seed oils. Kara and I are going to break down carbohydrates. Carbohydrates often get thrown under the bus here, and I'm not a fan of processed food carbohydrates, but I think there's some nuance here that at least from my perspective is worth digging into. But if you guys are curious and you're thinking, okay, um, I went to my doctor. They told me I was pre-diabetic. And as you said, Kara, this is so ridiculous. They say, oh, we'll just watch it. Mm-hmm. Like you like you don't know what's going to happen. In a year, they're going to come back and suddenly be magically better. The doctor doesn't give you this advice. Someone pointed out to me that um, GQ recently wrote an article about seed oils, which I thought was really cool. And they mentioned me in it, which is great. It says, okay, that's a mini victory for today that, that people are starting to wake up to the fact that if they remove seed oils from their diet, they can reverse this progression. Um, but that's that's sort of the, the main thing that I think physicians' offices should be recommending. When they see somebody with pre-diabetic ranges on their continuous glucose monitor or fasting insulin, they should be saying, you need to change your diet. But I think the confusion becomes they don't know what to tell people to change it to. You end up with physicians like this vegan physician on Twitter uh, who is saying – don't use CGMs, and and probably is not even going to understand that seed oils are problematic because they come from plants, and how could anything from plants be bad for humans? And so we end up with a lot of confusion for patients, and that leads to people suffering. So maybe now is a good time. Do you have any examples of continuous glucose monitors? I just want to show people the difference between a healthy postprandial glucose response and perhaps a disordered or a dysregulated postprandial glucose response. If you guys are listening to this, we'll do our best to describe this, but these videos will be on uh, YouTube and other platforms. And maybe we'll do like a little snippet for Instagram. People can see it as well.
1: Yeah. And I don't have examples pulled up right now. Um, So these are a few examples. This one you can see here, glucose does fluctuate throughout the day, and this would be considered normal. So um, as I'm sure we'll get into, you don't have to have a completely flat glucose line to have a healthy glucose regulation. We're looking to see if you're having physiologically normal responses to glucose and if your body's able to recover from that. Uh, So as you can see here, you know, it had a meal, this individual, and glucose went up a little bit, but it came back down. Um, Another meal later where glucose goes up, comes back down. And and this looks like pretty steady, even glucose fluctuations throughout the day. Whereas this individual had a similar meal, um, not a whole lot of carbohydrates, but glucose goes up all the way to 178. And it takes about five hours to come back down to what it was before. And so this is a very exaggerated glucose response. Typically when we're seeing that kind of impaired glucose response, we're usually seeing a high elevation and a slow recovery. So if you think about it as how high does it go and how long does it take my body to kind of resume normal homeostasis? That's what we're looking for. We're not looking for, did my glucose stay completely flat? but we're looking for those two metrics of kind of normal increase and a quick return to normal. And you can kind of see some here where this is a little bit higher, but still pretty quick back down, uh, pretty normal glucose response. There And I believe this one's actually yours. So it's normal to go up, especially if you have carbohydrates. I always explain to people, you know, if we had a continuous lipid monitor on and you saw your, your lipids go up every time you ate and you were wearing the CGM and you wanted to keep both as flat as possible, suddenly you would have nothing to eat. So it's physiologically normal to have glucose increase, especially if we have carbohydrate contain, you know, containing food. So anything that's going to get broken down into that glucose, um, it's normal to see glucose elevate. We just want to see how high does it go as a maximum value and can your body recover? The other thing that's important to keep in mind when you're just analyzing your data is how often is this happening? You know, with here, you see that your data is really nice and even and you just have these two moderate increases that recover quickly. But let's say you're eating every two hours and you're having a big increase every two hours all day long, that would then become a pretty high average if you're accumulating those ups and downs all day. So I think it's also important to think kind of how often are we eating? We see a lot of really elevated glucose values eating from relatively nutrient-dense diets from people who are grazing often or kind of eating pretty regularly around the clock. More normal glucose responses, and let's see if we have any other that look a little abnormal. These would be very prolonged again, where we're seeing kind of this long response back down to normal. So again, kind of the two things we're looking for is that spike and that return back down into normal. This one would be quite exaggerated.
0: yeah. And what we're describing here for people who are just listening to this, we're looking at a graph and along the X axis is time and along the Y axis is your glucose value. And when I'm looking at continuous glucose monitor readings, I'm looking at someone's baseline, number one, and you want the baseline generally, in my opinion, to be between 70 and 90 milligrams per deciliter. You can pinpoint that that fasting glucose in the morning, generally the glucose kind of drops throughout the night. Then it rises a little bit in the morning as you get this awakening response connected with cortisol. That's normal. But when I wore a couple of CGMs from NutriSense a couple of years ago, in fact, I wanted to wear another one for this podcast, but it was my bad. I forgot. So I'll do another one in the future and we can check up. But my diet's essentially the same as it was then. I would see uh, fasting glucose in the morning somewhere between 70 and 85. Uh, I was eating carbohydrates at the time. And then when I would, um, I was eating carbohydrates, broadly speaking, the fasting glucose was 70 to 85. Then I would eat breakfast in the morning and we did show some of my CGMs and the blood glucose would go up sometimes to 120, 130, 140, sometimes to 150. And I want to talk about that ceiling. And then it would come down pretty darn quickly. Um, how fast would you say that my blood glucose came back to normal? Generally speaking, Kara, uh, less than an hour, about an hour, if I'm recalling properly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I would say within an hour, an hour and a half, which would be considered normal, as we mentioned.
0: And so you can integrate. So I don't know how many of you guys listening to this like calculus. I loved calculus, but for those who don't like calculus, integration is essentially the area under the curve. It's an AUC. It's a really important metric. Uh, We talk about it with insulin AUC or glucose AUC, the area under the curve. And you're drawing a curve with that Postprandial glucose. And you're saying, okay, if I integrate that, if I figure out how much water that could hold if I turned it upside down, for instance, or how much, how much, you know, marker I'd have to use to color it in, what is the area under that curve? That's what we're trying to understand because that gives you a sense of how much insulin is required to dispose of that glucose. What we're describing here is a physiologic response where I eat carbohydrates or you eat carbohydrates and your body is releasing insulin in response to those carbohydrates. And that insulin is signaling at the level of the muscle generally to take up this carbohydrate and the liver as well. And so that, that, glucose is moving from your blood, where we're measuring it with a continuous glucose monitor, into the muscle, into the liver. And in states of insulin resistance, aka metabolic dysfunction, the actions of that insulin, the signaling of that insulin at the level of the liver and at the level of the muscle are deranged. And the insulin is knocking on the door, but the doors are not being opened. And the glucose is not getting taken up postprandially. Now, when people are diabetic or when people have prediabetes, we also see derangements in fasting glucose, which is generally a reflection of inappropriate gluconeogenesis, which is the liver making uh, inadequate, inappropriate amounts of glucose, even when you're not eating. So the liver makes glucose, but now we're getting into a little complex physiology. What we're describing now is mostly postprandial physiology, glucose disposal. So, Why do you become insulin resistant at the level of the muscle and the level of the liver? I believe it's because of inappropriate signaling connected with too much linoleic acid, as I mentioned earlier, seed oils leading to inappropriate signaling originating in the mitochondria, done many podcasts on that. But that's what we're seeing with the CGM is how efficiently, how quickly, and what is the morphology of which or with which your glucose is being disposed, quote unquote. It's being moved into tissues. And that's what we're describing. And so a healthy response can be a spike. And don't fear a spike, guys. We'll talk about this in a moment. Don't fear the spike. It's okay to have a glucose that moves. You don't want your glucose to be completely flat. And an unhealthy response would be a much, it'd be more like a tombstone. Uh, a much broader peak with a much higher area under the curve. So that's what we're looking at physiologically, and that's what we're looking at visually with the CGMs. There's more nuance here. You can look at postprandial. Uh, you can look at as it returns to baseline, does the glucose dip below baseline? You can look at the number of peaks in the postprandial glucose. These are things we've talked about in the past with Kara. It's kind of saying, what does the morphology of the peak actually look like? But generally, a broad peak after eating with a lot of area under the curve suggests something may be going on. Um, anything you want to add to that, Kara?
1: Yeah, and, and since we last spoke, um, you know, I think it was close to two years ago at this time, our app has obviously changed a lot since then. And one thing that we've done to try to make this simpler for people is every time you log a meal, you also get a glucose score associated with that meal. So it's a score one to 10 that takes into account a lot of these moving parts so that it can kind of help break it down into a one overall metric. So it's looking at, how high did your glucose go? It's calculating that AUC that you were mentioning. Um, It's looking at how big of a shift in glucose it was. And then also the recovery, you know, were you able to come back down into a normal range within two to three hours after eating? And that can help make it easier for people to kind of compare meal to meal. Let's say you're experimenting with the time of day you're eating or different amount of macronutrients, different ingredients It can kind of help to have that one uh, score associated with it that takes into account these moving parts. But also, as you mentioned, that doesn't mean that we need to be afraid of glucose moving. You can get a score of a 10 and your glucose can go up and come back down into normal uh, because we're not necessarily recommending a flat glucose line. There you might hear that out there of people who do recommend that your glucose essentially does not move. But as we mentioned, it's normal for glucose to increase when you consume carbohydrates, but also for other reasons. Um, if you have an intense workout, your glucose is going to rise. You know, If you are waking up, as you mentioned, you have a little bit of a glucose bump, that fluctuation is normal. What we want to know is Are all the systems in place to make sure that we have the right amount of exposure to glucose and that we do the right processes to turn this fuel that you're giving your body into usable energy? Are those things working properly? You know, are we recovering appropriately? Is our body responding correctly uh, when we're not eating it um, or not eating at all? We want to just see if we're having a healthy metabolic system and that doesn't mean that a flat glucose line. So I think it is very important for people to recognize that because I think I believe there's a point of diminishing returns. Um, there's going to be a point where lower lower is not always better. And I think a lot of the recommendations out there is as low as you can go is better overall. And I don't think we know that. And I think that that's probably counter to just normal physiological responses. So what we're trying to differentiate between is, what's normal versus what's abnormal, right? And what we want to do is capture any abnormalities early on. And we also want to capture just differences between people. Uh, We do see a lot of variance between people of, you know, I can eat the same thing that my colleague eats and we're going to have different glucose responses. And a lot of this we're, we're thinking is maybe related to microbiome composition. Maybe it's related just to genetics, epigenetics still kind of being uncovered but we wanna know how you uniquely respond. Are you at risk? Where's everything happening appropriately? And then if there are any red flags, yellow flags, what can we do about it? What kind of action can we take to improve that?
0: Though I believe most of your colleagues at NutriSense are pretty metabolically healthy, you could both eat the same meal and based on your history and your baseline metabolic health may respond differently as well. So um, this is to say that in, me, in Paul Saladino, as a metabolically healthy human who has avoided seed oils like the plague, I was able to eat honey uh, and fruit in that continuous glucose monitor that we looked at from a few years ago and have a normal postprandial response. Now, someone with diabetes or metabolic dysfunction may not have the same response because they have a different baseline than me. So this is to say, I'm going to add to that discussion and say, based on your under all, overall, your underlying metabolic health you may want to be selective in the foods that you eat as you are changing your overall diet. So this is really the whole picture that might emerge when someone goes to a doctor's office and they say, "Oh, Miss Smith, you've been wearing this continuous glucose monitor. We actually see that your postprandial glucose response looks a little bit abnormal. We think that you're pre-diabetic. Your fasting glucose is 95 or 92 or 87, but we think there's something going on here. Let's ch- check a fasting insulin. Oh, your fasting insulin is 6.5. Well, the median for the Westernized countries is eight to nine. And the ideal is probably less than five or even less than three for most people, micro IU per ml of fasting insulin. And they might say, okay, we want you to, we want you to make these changes to your diet. You probably should limit your carbohydrates somewhat, but make sure that you change the seed oil consumption, et cetera, et cetera. So based on the underlying metabolic health, someone could have different responses to the same food as well. Honey, fruit might not give everybody the same response that I get based on where you are and what you've done in the past, which is the whole point of what we're doing here. Um, That, I think, is an important point to make. And then I think if we move on a little bit further, I wanted to stress the fact that there are statistics on the amount of people in our society who are metabolically healthy. And I've quoted these in the past, but in case you guys are not aware, we are talking about 88% of the population with at least one abnormal metric that might be indicative of something called metabolic syndrome. This could be one of any of the following, high triglycerides, uh, low HDL, high blood pressure, waist to hip circumference, etc. Um, these are all indicating that there's something going on. And yet these are the people 88% of the population has one of these metrics and JAMA is arguing that we should not be using CGMs and non-diabetics, Kara. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, chances are anybody you encounter on the street is likely has some sort of metabolic dysfunction going on and we're doing very little about it. Um, even for those individuals that we know have an issue going on uh, that have diagnosed prediabetes, diabetes, we're not doing everything we could about it. A lot of times we're slapping a medication on them and telling them to eat healthy and move more and it's vague and it's not super helpful. And I actually think that is the most probably understated benefit of the CGM is not the ability to necessarily diagnose or even capture some of these dysregulated glucose values, but I think the most important benefit of the data is that it's actually actionable. You know, maybe we just use A1C and fasting glucose as diagnostic criteria, which I don't think are all encompassing, but even if we do use that, those values alone can't actually change individuals' behaviors. You know, if you get your A1C test done once a year, twice a year, and you see it skew a little bit in a positive or negative direction, it's very difficult for an individual to take that information and know what's working, what's not working, what they should keep doing, stop doing, if they need to change some more habits. But instead, that daily feedback you get from a continuous glucose monitor is what can help people fine tune and experiment and improve their habits in a much more rapid and meaningful way. You know, we see that people can figure out what works really quickly and they're much, much more likely to stick to it. So in an environment where we have processed food all around us, where uh, we are an extremely sedentary environment, we don't move much, uh, our dietary habits are pretty atrocious, we have the environment working against us and we really need tools that provide this immediate feedback in a meaningful and personalized way to help increase people's intrinsic motivation. At the end of the day, you know, you and I can tell people until we're blue in the face what to do and how important it is, but until they really believe it and find it super motivating, it's going to be hard for that individual to stick to it. So the more tools we have to help increase that behavior change and that sustainability I think is the ultimate win because we're talking about long-term completely lifestyle. Agree. we're not talking about fad diets we're not talking about quick fixes um, we're not talking about something you just do for a week and then it's a detox <laughs> we're talking about something you can stick to um, and if we have the tools to help you do that then I think that's the ultimate win and that's what we're seeing with the CGM
0: Yeah. It's so cool. And I just want to interject something else that I was thinking as we're doing this podcast. I want people who are listening to understand that glucose is not the devil and that insulin is not the devil. Neither of these things are harmful to humans. Mm -hmm. And if you guys listened to my controversial thoughts a few weeks ago about my concerns with long-term ketosis, you know that one of the reasons that I reincorporated carbohydrates in my diet was that I was getting electrolyte deficiencies, palpitations, muscle cramping, sleep disturbances, changes in my hormones when I was long-term ketogenic for a year and a half on a strict carnivore diet. So one of the original motivations to doing a continuous glucose monitor a few years ago was, okay, I'm going to add carbohydrates back to my diet. Look, everyone, it's not going to make me metabolically unhealthy. If you guys were... Uh, following me at that time, you know that the experiment was, I mean, it showed that I was remaining metabolically healthy despite eating things like fruit and honey for months and months. I did a fasting insulin, which showed that it was very low. Um, Even after eating those foods, glucose is not the enemy. Um, And I think that let's move into a discussion about this because there is some messaging out there that I think gets confusing for people. And this is generally coming from people that I believe are well-intentioned. And they are saying, Don't move your glucose above this number. Or as you suggested earlier, the messaging is sometimes we want the smallest amount of glycemic excursion possible. And I think that's a little misleading. It starts to say, like, glucose is bad. And if you put more glucose in your blood, even temporarily, it's going to harm your body. And I just am not convinced that's the case. When I was with the Hadza, um, they were eating honey. Without abandon, like just, just with reckless abandon, uh, it's not even reckless because it's good for them, but they were eating honey when we could find it and they, they're sure their blood sugar went up above 130, uh, when they did that. And mine did too because I ate honey right out of the comb. I posted about this on Instagram the other day. So let's, let's talk about what we know about this, this ceiling for blood glucose and, and how people can understand how much glucose variability is reasonable, what's abnormal and what's, what's reasonable. And then, Let's just stack on top of that the other point that I was trying to make earlier, which is that your body uses insulin to respond to glucose. Insulin is incredibly important. Don't fear insulin. Insulin induced insulin resistance is really, I think, uh, a figment of most researchers' imaginations. I don't think that it's for some people, sure, you're eating Cheetos 24 hours a day. You could create some degree of insulin induced insulin resistance, but I think that for the majority of people, What causes insulin resistance is not excess consumption of carbohydrates. It's the seed oils like we talked about. So let's just create a framework for people. What have you seen, Cara? What's generally the, the framework to think about what numbers you want to see on your CGM? Should we fear glucose changing values?
1: Yeah. And we can start with what we have the most concrete evidence for and what we feel the most confident about. And that is that we don't really want to see glucose above 200 ever. Um, And we know this because this is an independent diagnostic criteria for diabetes. It's very well established that whether it's postprandial or any random time of day, if your glucose is above 200, that is way above the threshold we're looking for. Um, So we can state that with pretty... Solid confidence, and then the grayer question is: Well, what is optimal? We know what is decompensation. Um, so even if you have an entire honeycomb, a healthy individual with good insulin sensitivity, their glucose won't go above two hundred. We see that all the time. You know, I I see individuals who consume 300 grams of carbohydrates in a meal and their glucose goes to 150, 160. Um, and they're they're metabolically healthy. I wouldn't expect it to go 200 or higher. So we can say that with pretty, um, pretty much certainty is that that is a high ceiling. Um, but what we know from a lot of different lab values, a lot of different metrics is that that threshold for a chronic condition isn't always the same as optimal. Same for fasting insulin. I think the reference range threshold is 30, 40, I'm not really sure even what it is on a standard lab panel, but we know from a lot of research that's done that we want to actually see it lower than that to be in the optimal range. So what we're trying to understand is what is that peak glucose value that's going to help us stay in optimal health. And I think that we have to admit that we don't know with 100% certainty where that threshold is. We have to kind of triangulate from the data that is available to make our best guess of what we should aim for as a goal. And where we're at right now at Nutrisense, what conclusion I have come to is that 140 I think is a reasonable ceiling or goal to reach for. But I don't think that means if your glucose goes a little bit above that that you're insulin resistant. And I don't think that means that your system's going to crumble and break um, if you have you know a glucose spike a little bit above that. We know from you know the research we're pulling from is observational data of just non-diabetics wearing CGM, most people, as were mentioned, they don't go much above 140, sometimes 150. You know, sometimes they are above that for a longer period of time, but a lot of times individuals are staying below that threshold. And then the other kind of research that we're pulling from is that On uh, the research on the oral glucose tolerance test that we talked about. Um, If you pair that with insulin monitoring, so you drink the glucose solution, but you're checking both glucose and insulin, we can usually see that insulin levels start to deviate first. And when glucose starts to go above 140, um, some research studies look at 155 as a different threshold. We start to see those insulin levels also skew abnormally. And that's also when we start to see sometimes uh, more markers of inflammation, um, endothelial damage. So we're pulling from two maybe imperfect sources to come up with the best guess that we can come up with. Cause we know for a fact that just aiming for 200 is probably not good enough. You know, I, I wouldn't feel confident saying as long as you're under 200, I feel pretty good about that. So we know it's somewhere in between then. And we're kind of triangulating based off the data that's available. Um, and I think 160 is a Decent threshold to reach for. But what we tell our individuals, our customers at NutriSense, is that this is really about repetition. If you have, you know, three meals a day you're eating and all of them are hitting 150, and that's contributing then to an average glucose that's rising, you're having a slower recovery, a larger area under the curve that's a much different story than somebody who has one glucose spike during the day to 140 and it comes back down to 100 in an hour, kind of as, as we looked at. Um, so I think it's important to take a macro view too and look at the big picture. What's your glucose doing in a 24 seven? You know, We have two weeks of data, at least for everybody. What's it doing in a two week average? What's your average glucose? What's your standard deviation, which is the swings in glucose? Um, we want to see how these postprandial responses are contributing to a bigger picture. You know, one downfall of the continuous data is that then we tend to get really myopic and maybe look at this like 30 minute window and pick it to pieces and try to decide how perfect it is or how imperfect it is. When I think it's helpful to take a step back and see how that is contributing to the bigger picture trends. So that's what we really try to teach, and that's what our app kind of helps to identify trends and that bigger picture view rather than getting kind of stuck on one particular moment in time. But um, you know, we know we wanna be less than 200, probably not gonna have any benefit from being below 140. I certainly don't feel confident about the thresholds that get thrown around of 110, 120. I have seen very little to no evidence to suggest that low has any sort of additional benefit um, But again, if you hit a glucose spike a, above 140 within reason every once in a while, I, I don't think that's breaking your metabolic system. I think it's just a ceiling we're reaching for because it's the evidence that we have.
0: That's my sense, too. And I think I'll add to that discussion examples that you and I have talked about on the previous podcast of people who eat no carbohydrates and their blood sugar is flat all day. But over time, and this is something that I actually shared during the Uh, mini solo podcast I did about my concerns with the ketogenic diet, that over time, long-term ketogenic zero-carb diets do lead to elevation of fasting and baseline blood sugars. And a lot of times in long-term carnivores, we will see hemoglobin A1Cs above six. So we don't really know what that's doing. And they're not having any glucose spike, and their blood sugar is never really above 115 all day but their baseline glucose is about 110 all day long and to me that's a disordered profile as well that's not indicative of a an ideal physiologic response or ideal i would say insulin glucose handling physiology so i think this is an important point to make because it does get thrown around a lot in health circles, that you don't want your glucose to go above this magical ceiling of 140, and that suddenly above 140, everything starts crashing down, and bells and whistles go off in your body, and there's inflammation, and endothelial cells start breaking. And I just don't believe that to be the case. We've never put a continuous glucose monitor on one of the Hadza. Um, Maybe that's something we could get permission to do the next time we go. But generally speaking, I believe their blood glucose responses are pretty darn good from what I've seen. Other people have taken blood glucose. Uh, Herman Ponser, who I had on the podcast in the past, I believe has done some blood metrics with them. They are not a diabetic people and they eat a lot of honey during the day. I want to share something here. This is the kind of stuff, this is the reason that I think this conversation is important and I wanted to add it to our conversation. I saw um, this physician um, post on Inst- on Twitter the other day uh, about this exact point and I'll show the screenshot and my response. Um, let's see if I can find it. Here it is. So let's see if it'll come up here. So this is Mark Hyman saying, what's the primary driver behind insulin resistance, a diet abundant in quickly absorbed sugars and carbohydrates. And then he goes on in parentheses to say bread, pasta, rice, potatoes, etc. that continuously spike your glucose. Now, it's his first statement here, is a diet abundant and quickly abor- absorbed sugars and carbohydrates, I think is wrong. Because like I said, the Hadza, the imbuti, the Tukasinta eat many of these foods and do not become insulin resistant. I am no fan of bread, pasta, rice, potatoes, etc. cetera. Um, and if we are continually spiking our glucose uh, 12 to 14 hours a day with seven meals a day, yeah, maybe. But again, there are plenty of examples as I replied here. <laughs> And I said, absolutely, Paul, if this were true, why did the two the hadza, and the Mbuti, the Mbuti pygmies sometimes get 60 to 80% of their calories from honey at certain times of the year and remain metabolically healthy and flexible. Um, I went on to say seed oils are the major driver here. Um, so I was I was I was not mixing my words with Mark Hyman. I just think this is really misleading to people. And if we are exonerating, if we are not putting the blame where the blame really is, then people will not eliminate seed oils from their diet. Am I happy if they eliminate bread, pasta, potatoes? Yes, absolutely. But I don't think those are the main driver, nor do I think that things like honey are the main driver. So I just want to dig into this a little bit, Kara, and feel free to, to add anything you would like to this discussion. Um there is some interesting evidence about glycemic load and glycemic index. And this is just one study that I found. Um, It's called The Relevance of uh, Glycemic Index and Glycemic Load for Body Weight, Diabetes, and Cardiovascular Disease. And what's interesting is that they find that uh, they say it is unlikely that the glycemic index of a food or a diet is linked to disease risk or health outcomes. Other measures of dietary quality, such as fiber or whole grains, which is their words, not mine, may be more likely to predict health outcomes. I would say other measures of dietary quality, yes, not fiber or whole grains, but uh, food patterns uh, of people who are eating whole foods, meat organs, fruit, et cetera, I think would be more likely to predict health outcomes. But I found it interesting that glycemic index or glycemic load did not really predict uh, health outcomes in people. So that is the rep- or the speed with which a sugar is absorbed isn't really the whole situation. Um, I think that that's an interesting point to make and sort of counterpoint to what Mark Hyman is saying. The other thing I wanted to point out is that most of the studies that are done in humans looking at um, these postprandial glucose responses, as you said, are OGTTs. And these are interesting studies, like for instance, this one, which I'll show um, quickly. Um, This is a study which... Um, is titled postprandial hyperglycemia impairs vascular endothelial function in healthy men by inducing lipid peroxidation and increasing asymmetric dimethyl arginine to arginine ratio, which is sort of an indication of nitric oxide deficiency or nitric oxide uh dysfunction. and so, But in this study, if you read it, they're doing an OGTT. They're infusing either glucose or 75 grams of fructose after an overnight fast. They're using what's called artery flow mediated dilatation, which is where they look at the way the brachial artery dilates after being compressed by a blood pressure cuff. They're also looking at plasma glucose and insulin antioxidants, malandialdehyde, inflammatory proteins, arginine, and ADMA in the three-hour postprandial period. And what they found, no surprise, was that in giving people 75 grams of a pure sugar, like fructose or glucose, was not good for these things. Now, that that just needs to be taken in the proper context because my concern is that there are some in the health space who would look at that result and say, okay, see, um, you should avoid sugars at all costs, and this is not a good thing for you. Fruit and honey are no good. The problem here is that this is nutritional reductionism, and I'll show a series of studies that show that if you eat a whole food, people may refer back to the podcast I did with Stefan Van Vliet and talking about the differences in the way that the body might respond, even in the arterial level or the endothelial level, to a whole food, like a strawberry or honey, which we know has uh, nitric oxide precursors in it. So this is why I think this discussion is so important. So if you look at studies like this, you will find that Real honey, for instance, has nitric oxide precursors in it. It has things in it which um, create more nitric oxide metabolites in the human body. Now, nitric oxide is a key molecule involved in this endothelial. Um, it's a key molecule involved in this endothelial response to uh, to foods we eat, to other things that we are ingesting in our diet. Um, the screen share is not working. Let me try the other one here. One more time. There it goes. It was there for a second. We'll see if we can get this to work here. You guys watching this on the video, I apologize that technology is not being our friend. The two studies that I'm trying to post here are identification of nitric oxide metabolites in various honeys, effects of intravenous honey on plasma and urinary nitric oxide metabolite concentrations, and they say um, that intravenous infusion of honey increased plasma and urinary nitric oxide metabolites. Super interesting, really, really important. The other study, honey increased saliva, plasma, and urine content of total nitrite concentrations in normal individuals. Again, the exact same finding that in normal individuals who are eating raw, dark, organic honey, there are nitric oxide metabolites. And then I just want to point out a few more studies with honey, not because I'm paid by the honey lobby, which I'm not, (laughs) but that there is more nuance here in the quality of the food. Thank you, Kara, for indulging me here um, in this soliloquy. Um, We'll see if this one works. So this is honey and its role in relieving multiple facets of atherosclerosis. Well, how could honey relieve multiple facets of atherosclerosis if it's just sugar and it's causing endothelial dysfunction or lipid peroxidation, which we know happens when you infuse pure glucose or fructose into the bloodstream in these OGTT flow media dilatation studies. So this is a review um, from November 2018 by, um, the last author is Nitin Mantri, and this other study, Malaysian Tuolang honey inhibits hydrogen peroxide-induced endothelial hyperpermeability. So here we have an example of a honey actually inhibiting or uh, reversing hydrogen peroxide-induced endothelial hyperpermeability, presumably because of nitric oxide metabolites or other uh, metabolites, which are effectively beneficial for endothelial function. So um, I'm curious what you think about that. But as I was reading all this, I just kind of wanted to put that together and add it to our discussion and say that, okay... Most of the recommendations we get about absolute ceilings for blood glucose are based on OGTT, as you said, infusions of glucose and fructose, which, and this is a super, super important point that I want to enforce just one more time. Food matrix sugars are totally different than pure sugars. And um, this is where I differ from those in the Ray Peet community. So Ray Peet community would say that pure sugar is great for humans. And I'm not convinced that that's the case because it's missing all of these food matrix components that may affect vascular permeability, endothelial function, lipid peroxidation. But I don't think strawberries and honey that's raw from a hive in Africa or from a hive here in Costa Rica or from a hive there in 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 Texas, I think there's actually good data suggests that that's going to have an opposite effect on your uh, arterial dilatation and these other metrics that we're sort of looking at and using as proxies as we create this this ceiling for where our blood glucose would be. That was a rant. What do you think of all that, Kara?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point that that's a missing area of the research, right? As you mentioned, a lot of how we're trying to understand where the ceiling is comes from the OGTT research. And I can't imagine that we're having good uh, physiological processes by ingesting pure glucose. So it's not representative of what is existing in real food. So I would think in an ideal world, the research that needs to be done is wearing people wearing a cgm monitoring these postprandial responses to a variety of real foods um i think across the spectrum of processed foods all the way to different whole foods to see then comparing that to what inflammatory markers are going on looking at insulin responses so we can get a better idea of kind of the whole picture with real foods because i definitely think that's missing. So I would agree with you. Um, I think we're making our best guess of where that ceiling is if we're striving for optimal rather than just not diabetes. We know, again, we don't want to be hitting 200, even if it's from pure glucose. We want to be staying well below that. But how far below is the question that I think still needs a little bit of time to be answered. And one point that you made that I also wanted to circle back with was related to the individuals who have been following maybe a very strict, no-carbohydrate diet for a prolonged period of time. Um, Another use case for the CGM is to help people liberalize, liberalize their diet if it needs to happen. And not everybody wants to do this. You know, I have an example of a customer I've been working with for a long time who's managing her MS symptoms by staying in a very specific range of ketones you know i wouldn't recommend that she incorporate glucose because she's managing a chronic condition with a ketogenic diet but a lot of individuals who are following a ketogenic diet might just be doing it because they think it's the best diet for them for general health or for weight loss Um, but they feel like it's restrictive they're missing some of these components and i would argue it's making you metabolically inflexible to using glucose as an energy source you are now fat adapted, which I hate that term, but uh, you are now very efficient at utilizing fat as fuel, but not as efficient as using glucose as fuel anymore. If you've really just switched the pendulum to one fuel source as the primary fuel source. Um, And so if people want to be a little bit more metabolically flexible, have some more flexibility in their dietary choices to consume some carbohydrates if they want to do so, then the CGM is actually a really great tool for many people to reincorporate that carbohydrate, see their glucose stays within those normal ranges and understand that it's not gonna give them diabetes or it's not causing insulin resistance. So we have just as many instances of customers who find this device liberating um, and allow them to kind of incorporate some of these items back into their diet as the same amount of people who we found are having those abnormal postprandial responses that we didn't capture otherwise. You know, we see both instances every day. Uh, So it's another tool that I think can be really helpful for the person who's maybe a little fearful of carbohydrates, or they're not sure where it might fit back into their diet, but they're wanting to explore that. Uh, So it's helpful for people to have that peace of mind, see the data and figure out where it can fit back in.
0: I love it. I totally agree. And I think that's a great use case for this type of thing. And it certainly was part of my uh, use of it as I changed my diet from purely carnivorous to what I would call now animal-based, and that has been a very positive thing for me. Um, As we start to wrap up, you mentioned, so you brought up this study, which I was not aware of in our uh, pre-podcast conversations. Do you want to walk us through this one? I thought this was pretty cool, and I think this will resonate with a lot of our audience. The title is High Serum Glucose Levels Are Associated with a Higher Perceived Age. If people were not convinced about the utility of understanding your Mm -hmm. glucose levels, this may just do it. I hope.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and this is related to the point that we didn't really touch on too much, but glucose doesn't just tell you about your risk for diabetes, right? Um, as I'm sure your audience is aware, metabolic health, insulin resistance, glucose levels, it doesn't just stop short of diabetes. It's related to Alzheimer's, dementia, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, hypertension, Um, sexual health, as you mentioned, but it's also age, longevity and perceived age, how we look. And even if we want to say that's not important to us, it's important to all of us. And so this study was super interesting where they saw that perceived age, so what age people think you look like and compared that against both glucose and insulin levels and perceived age increased 0.4 years for every one millimole increase in glucose in non-diabetic individuals, uh, which is an important caveat to make. So this is really interesting. It's going to make you age faster biologically, but also look older. Um, And this reflects back to other studies we've seen of just kind of those advanced glycation end products so when you have a lot of glucose circulating in the bloodstream this can damage dna lower our natural antioxidant defenses and kind of advance that epigenetic clock so all of this is related to driving aging and again as we mentioned that doesn't mean that any rise in glucose is going to cause this, uh, this cascade of effects, but it's when we're starting to reach that abnormal thresholds and kind of having those consistently elevated glucose levels.
0: And I think it's important, we can we can kind of uh, really add to that, that point, the fact that if your blood glucose levels are consistently elevated, it's an indication that you have metabolic dysfunction underlying all of this and you are having insulin resistance. And there are all sorts of things underlying probably excess polyunsaturated fatty acids in your mitochondrial and cell membranes leading to all sorts of physiologic imbalance under the surface that is leading to these elevated glucose levels. So again, from my perspective, I don't want to speak for Cara, from my perspective, it's not that you're going to eat two tablespoons of honey and you're going to age yourself. It's that the higher levels of glucose are an indication of underlying metabolic unhealth.
1: Exactly, yeah, I would agree with that, where it's, it's really what we're looking at is, is that physiological system, that normal glucose regula- regulation, metabolic health, is that working properly? And if it's not, even at the earliest indications, which might be before diabetic levels as we've gone over, um, we start to see those consequences.
0: So just so people understand the results of that study, what is one millimolar of glucose in milligrams per deciliter? So they're saying 0.4 years for every one millimole. So let's convert that to people for people uh, into milligrams per deciliter.
1: Yeah. So one millimole, let's see, I might have to look that one up, but 7.8 is 140. So if we're looking at that threshold of, of 140 to 7.8, and so I think one... Oh, boy. So these are all our our UK friends. are actually anyone who's not in the US, <laughs> because the US does things differently.
0: Uh, we can we can edit this part out, Zach. We'll just yeah. we'll just make it seamless.
1: <laughs> One millimole is eighteen milligrams per deciliter.
0: Perfect. So eighteen milligrams per deciliter is not a small amount. I mean, that's the difference between. Uh, 80 and 98 or uh, 100 and 118, but we're looking at like a functional unit here of glucose, like almost 20, almost 20 units of glucose milligrams per deciliter is is an, an average 0.4 years. So if somebody goes from being non-diabetic, presumably they're having a fasting glucose of Uh, 80 and an average blood glucose of 85 with a hemoglobin A1C of what would that be? 4.6 or something. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Um, Then you go to a diabetic range where someone has an average blood glucose of 160. You're looking years and years older than you would normally. And that is not just aesthetics. That is an indication of a breakdown of all of these tissues in your body. So I think there is something to how people look. Um, lighting is also very important. Every once in a while, I do a video on Instagram and I have really poor lighting and I always hear about it. And people are like, oh, you look so bad and so old. And I say, oh, you guys are jerks. But anyway, lighting, lighting can be very uh, misleading for people as well. But in general, if we're looking at ourselves in the mirror or you, I think most people listening to this know the phenomenon where they do something positive with their diet, whether it's cutting out seed oils or cutting out processed sugars, or eating more animal meat or organs, or doing all of the above, or even, this is crazy, but even cutting out things like kale, which I'm not a fan of, um, they go see their friends and their friends say, I haven't seen you in three months and you look so much better. There's something going on here. The way that we look, the quality of our skin, our eyes, our sclera, there's something here. And I just wanted to really um, bring that home for people. So in summary, How could you summarize this for people, Kara? What should we say? Maybe we just, why don't you give your overall perspective on this, some recommendations, and then we'll we'll wrap it up.
1: Yeah. So I think if we're wrapping all of this up, I, of course, believe that CGMs are important for everyone to have access to and that this is information that can help you make proactive and meaningful decisions about your metabolic health and your health in general. And as we know, metabolic health, Reaches a wide spectrum. It's not just diabetes, it's how you look, it's how your skin looks. It's pretty much a risk factor for all of our major chronic conditions. And if we can do anything to help identify any dysregulation and metabolic health early on, the better. And a CGM is a really unique and interesting tool that can help capture some of those deviations before we cross that threshold, that metabolic spectrum into diabetes so that we can make some tweaks and really improve how our glucose is looking uh, before we're too far down the line. And this can help kind of have that ripple effect into all aspects of health and help move the needle towards prevention more than reaction. And I think that's really what it's all about. It's having tools that help identify things early and help you actually create a plan that you can stick to. You know, Knowledge is one thing and behavior change is another. So any tool that is a win-win for both, I think is is something powerful that everyone should have in their toolbox. And we shouldn't limit that as a society just to people once they've had a problem. I think that's the wrong mindset to look through. And if we get stuck in that mindset, we're not gonna make any progress in uh, the health of this society in the way that we want it to.
0: And I think that, as you said earlier, this this has implications for COVID, for cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke, dementia, cancer, uh, sexual health, libido, autoimmune conditions. Basically, everything under the sun is affected by this, which is why it's such an important conversation and why I really wanted to have you on for this repeat conversation and why I was so incredulous that a physician on Instagram would would try and disparage the use of CGMs. I am always a fan of more data. And just so people understand, the reference ranges we were talking about was 140, maybe 150 or 155 milligrams per deciliter as a threshold, as a sort of a ceiling for your blood glucose. You want a very quick return to baseline. You want a small area under the curve. You want low glycemic variability. You want generally low fasting blood glucose, and you want low fasting insulin, ideally less than 5 I probably even less than three micro IU per ml. If you do those things, as I said on the recent podcast with Rob Wolf, if you do those things, you are really going to give yourself some metrics that you cannot hide from. And if doctors use these more, um, then you, there's really nowhere for anyone to hide. Like this is the problem with so many of the metrics, as you said earlier, Kara, that fasting blood glucose, uh, OGTT is not done, uh, but basically fasting blood glucose and hemoglobin A1C allow way too many people to fall through the cracks. And what's cool about what you guys are doing at NutriSense is it doesn't even require a doctor's prescription. You guys have it set up so that people can go and just get, uh, a CGM, uh, safely, legally, and use it. Um, even if your doctor isn't savvy, you can, then bring your doctor this data and educate them. So thank you for this conversation. Where can people find more of your work and NutriSense?
1: Yeah, so to check out what we're doing at NutriSense, you can just go to our website, NutriSense.io, and that's also where you sign up if you're interested. And as you mentioned, we take care of all the headache behind getting these devices, Um, all the hoops you normally have to jump through. You just fill out a quick questionnaire on our website, and then we would ship the device to you and take care of everything else for you. Um, And then if you just want to kind of follow along with what we're learning, see what other people's data looks like. If you want to see more screenshots um, on our social media, NutriSense.io, we're always posting pictures, things we're thinking about, uh, things we're experiencing. So it's a good place to kind of follow along with this information as well.
0: So if you guys want to see how bad vegan CGMs look, you can go to NutriSense.io. No, I'm kidding. Although there was a testimonial on your website a while ago of a female vegan physician who said you know i my blood glucose wasn't good and then i and used this thing so who knows
1: yeah I was there and, and just to wrap that up what you mentioned a second ago one of our customers calls her cgm her truth meter and i love that because you can't hide from it um you know when you want to pretend that nobody's looking when you have that late night chocolate binge or whatever it is, this helps people stay on track and have accountability to what they actually want to achieve, but sometimes struggle to do. Uh, so I think it's really helpful when we can have those tools in place that, that help us stick to what we want to do.
0: I, I generally am hesitant to accept more technology into my life, but I feel like this is a very good use of technology. And I think that in the future, it will be really helpful for people if we have more of these types of things, more real-time measurements. Imagine if people could real-time measure their testosterone or their estrogen or their advanced glycation end products or their amyloid uh, peptide or their um, their insulin. And they could say, oh, I didn't sleep well last night. Look at how much more amyloid is in my blood or my CSF. Or look at, you know, I, I drank this alcohol last night and I didn't sleep well, look at how much lower my testosterone is for a man, or look at how disordered my estrogen is for a woman. These type of things would, I think really help us with these behaviors. Uh, And I mean, people are entitled to make whatever choices they, they choose. And, you know, certainly a night of drinking every once in a while is, is, is common and reasonable for most people. But I think that if your goal is overall health, having real time feedback is incredibly powerful. So thanks for the work that you're doing. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And, Um, I look forward to hearing more of the research that you guys are coming up with and seeing more of the results you guys get from these CGMs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Paul.